Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Barnard. So Chris is the head performance coach and founder of Overtime Athletes and that is an athlete training facility located in St. Petersburg, Florida. Chris is known for his fantastic power development programs which have helped athletes seriously improve their vertical jump and therefore their sporting performance. So Without further ado, it's time to welcome Chris onto the show. So Chris, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate you. Thank you very much for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Chris Barnard. Uh, I'm a performance coach here uh, at my facility, Overtime Athletes in St. Pete. Well, our facility is called Strength Camp. Uh, my company is called Overtime Athletes, um, and I'm a performance coach here in St. Petersburg, Florida. I primarily specialize in basketball, football, and baseball athletes. Um, I train them kind of year-round um, in the off-season. I'm able, fortunate enough to be able to work with a lot of guys from the high school all the way up to the pro levels um, and kind of watch them develop throughout the years. As well as now, um, guys are able to travel in from all across the country in the offseason to be able to develop them that offseason. So I've just been fortunate enough to be able to kind of grind up through the ranks, working through each level, and uh, just been fortunate enough to work with a really good group of guys now. Um, As we're speaking right now, we're in the summer months, um, so it's football offseason right now. Some of my NFL guys just got done with minicamp, OTAs. And so we're just back at it with an eight-week block before they have to take off. And uh, yeah, just still in the trenches, still grinding. Absolutely fantastic. So we're going to come and steal some of your knowledge today about vertical force production specifically. So when we, when we look at vertical force production, obviously you've just mentioned some sports which seriously benefit from that. Um, but what does that mean? And how does it differ from force production in other vectors? Hmm. So what I like to break it down as far as like a simple term, if you can look at it as there's obviously three main uh, that we refer to and utilize, which is, you know, obviously vertical. And you think about that as your vertical jump, you're just overcoming gravity, right? You have horizontal where for the most part, you're, you know, obviously we we think of this as something like a broad jump or something pushing forward Uh, and then lateral. And this is our ability to be able to push off or move in the frontal plane. Um, Now, obviously there's more in our body's, pretty fluid and dynamic, but in simple terms, these are the three. Um, And when it comes to vertical, uh, I kind of look at that as, uh, for lack of a better term, like the holy grail. If I can increase somebody's vertical without even touching their horizontal or lateral, meaning we're not working that per se, I can increase those other two. But I can't do that with specifically laterally or horizontal force. So, that's why I refer to it as the Holy grail. Not only that is, you know, really by being able to overcome, uh, 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 you know, gravity in the vertical plane, um, you know, I see that it translates over to other things such as agility, linear speed, um, things of that nature, which a lot of these team sport athletes need to be able to utilize. I think that's a, that's a very interesting concept as well. So in this sense, the, the vertical force production transfers really well to horizontal and lateral movements, but that's not necessarily yeah. the case the other way around. 
Correct. So if I were to just take an athlete and from my experience, if I were to increase their vertical jump, let's say, you know, four to five inches in an off season, I can see if we were to test those same parameters, let's say a single leg lateral broad jump and a sing or a broad jump, a single leg broad jump. Right. So now I'm testing horizontal force and lateral force. If I can just just specifically increase that vertical, um, I'll see that those other two horizontal and lateral will increase. But again, if I were to just focus on lateral, uh, I wouldn't see the vertical increase. Or if I would just focus on horizontal force, I wouldn't see the lateral and the vertical increase. So it's the one out of all three of them that we can see a huge increase across the board. So when it comes to sport performance, then how, how important is that? Because um, obviously some, some things are obvious, right? So think, things like basketball, if you can't slam dunk and you can put some inches on your vertical and you can all, all of a sudden you have a, a new area of expertise, which you can apply your, your practice to, but how important is it to increase vertical force production in various sports? Yeah, great question. So we often kind of, you know, associate vertical force with strictly basketball athletes because obviously they play a real vertical game. But I'd venture to say that vertical force or vertical jump, if I can increase that in an athlete, that that's going to really kind of uh, I, I think that, that if there's one metric across all sports that I would use as that one metric to try to increase and that I know that that athlete can be a lot more prepared or developed physically to get an adaptation to translate over to the field, it would be the vertical, it would be ver- their, their vertical force output or their vertical jump, right? Um, and I say that because it translates to so many different areas. I mean, if you think about, okay, so let's talk about maximum velocity or top speed, right? An athlete, if, if we measure an athlete in top speed, they're actually, even though they're moving horizontally down a track, they're producing more vertical force every time that foot makes contact with the ground than horizontal force. In fact, horizontal is like minimal compared to vertical. So that's just one example of how much we actually utilize that. You know, we talk about strength, right? Like something like a squat or a trap bar deadlift. If all I focused on now, those are other resources that can increase the vertical force or increase our vertical jump. But at the end of the day, that's that one metric that I know from a a physical preparation uh, standpoint that if I can increase that in all of my athletes, that I know that they're going to be their abilities on the field or court are going to be better. Right. It's going to add to their agility. It's going to you have all these other ancillary things. Right. We can strengthen across the ankle. We can strengthen across the knee to prevent injury. All all these are things. But from a performance standpoint, if I can increase that vertical force, it will just directly translate over to so many things, whether it be, you know, how they move on the court field, whatever it is. And that's again, goes back to who I primarily deal with. And that's football, baseball and basketball athletes. Um, and like I said, you know, we, we kind of often think about it because obviously because of the movement, um, you know, and the movement in basketball, we think we associate it with just purely being able to dunk, but it translates over to so much more. Um, and as I said, in the beginning of this, when we discussed, if I were to just increase vertical jump, I can see the others increase and not even train those modalities. So when you're when you're measuring these things, right? Because obviously at some point you're going to need to to measure things, otherwise uh, 
athletes are going to turn around and be like, well, I don't know whether they got better or not. So when you're, when you're measuring these things, what, what are the KPIs that you're using to uh, ensure that athletes are actually progressing on their vertical jumps or their vertical force yes. reduction, by the way? Yes. Great question. So usually my process is, like I said, I usually deal with off seasons, right? <clears throat> Most of the guys that I work with now at this level, they are at the professional level or collegiate. So majority of the time they travel and I'm not with them during the season. So I get my hands on them in the off season. And what we do typically is we typically do uh, baseline performance testing when they enter. Um, now, part of that baseline performance testing uh, is going to be a vertical jump, right? And the standard here has always been utilizing something like a vertex, right? Where an athlete needs to jump, hit the sticks, and then we measure based off of their standing reach. Um, I know that we've improved that a lot with things like jump mats and force plates and stuff like that. Um, I noticed that most of these combines, they still utilize that, that, uh, that standard as the vertex. So I've always just adopted that. Now there's different ways that you can improve technique on that, but really I'm just trying to get a baseline metric, right? I just want to kind of see if I can, as a coach, be able to see that, you know, athlete a was here. And then, you know, three months later, we're able to retest this and see where he's at. Uh, and we didn't really, really hammer home on the technique of actually, you know, jumping on the vertex, then I can know that we've improved our vertical force. Right. Um, in addition to that, obviously there's other metrics. One is, uh, a, a trap bar deadlift. I'm a big fan of that, uh, horizontal force. I do that with a single leg and double a bilateral, if you will. Um, and then I do like a single leg lateral. Really, it just depends on the needs analysis of the athlete. So there's a lot of key ones that I perform on all those athletes amongst those three sports. And then depending on the actual sport, for instance, I did a valuation on a um, on a baseball prospect yesterday. Um, and he was brought in to me with an agent and we tested out some various things. But we also noticed that... Uh, you know, he had some imbalances between his single leg, which is typical for baseball athletes because it's pattern overload sport. So then we wanted to kind of test out some trunk action and some throws, you know, uh, ballistic throws with medicine balls to kind of test out the trunk. Uh, so it kind of just bases on that. But to kind of tie it back into what you asked was, you know, really the Vertec is the number one standard I use for the vertical jump. I test that with all my athletes. Athletes who have been with me, I've been fortunate enough to work with athletes over multiple off seasons. You know, I've had, uh, you know, some as much as six, seven years now in the off season. Um, still a young guy, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, one of, you know, when I test them out, I do get their baseline metrics. However, majority of the time, each off season after like two off seasons, I'm getting their final uh, peak before they go into like spring training or camp, because really I don't want to, as a coach, I'm not trying to test you out on day one when you enter your off season, because you just had a strenuous in season and some guys don't adhere to in season training as well. So I'm trying to test you out at the end of your off season after all this training. And my goal is at the end of each off season to increase that number. So instead of just trying to kind of build a little bit of confidence within our athletes, Right. Whereas I used to do that, you know, I even went as far as like back in the day, I look at myself now, it's like I would perform some PAP just to get them to jump a little bit higher on the vertical jump. But you start to realize as a coach that that's more for your own ego as opposed to the raw, real numbers of seeing a true adaptation in vertical force. So if I can try to kind of keep the standard there 
I don't want them to jump too much on the sticks because then they get they really improve their technique and their ability, their movement economy to be able to touch the sticks. Really, what I just want to do is in enter, hit this, you know, test out vertical jump about midway point, about after month two, we'll go ahead and test it again, see where we're at, depending on the block that we're doing. And then finally, when we kind of get through our peak phase and I kind of hand them off into camp or spring training or preseason, if you will, I get a final number. And these are metrics that I, I basically track on a yearly basis. I think that's super comprehensive and uh, really interesting to see how you not only have a, a general test battery, but can individualize that for the athlete as necessary. Um, when it comes to then actually programming for vertical force, how do you go about doing that? Because there's a, there's a whole host of uh, exercises, a whole host of sets and reps. How do you go about improving vertical force in these athletes? Ooh, let me see if I can uh, unpack this in a shorter version. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you've got, you've got like three minutes, so go ahead. <laughs> gotcha. Let me go ahead and try to do this. So, okay, so I was a huge fan of I, – I did this in myself. I was able to develop a 44-inch vertical jump uh, around the year 2016. I really hit the research hard. I've hired coaches throughout the years. Um, in short – uh, I discovered triphasic training from Cal Dietz, um, which really showed me another way of, of, you know, resistance training with compound movements to be able to develop vertical force. Now, uh, essentially in short, he utilizes block periodiz periodization to be able to stress each modality, eccentric, isometric, and concentric. Well, from my time from a coach named Jay Schroeder, when I was playing junior college football out in Arizona, uh, he showed me a lot of these same kind of modalities, but through plyometrics, through jump training, not compound resistance. Um, so essentially what I did was I took my time uh, uh, from some of the strongman and powerlifters. I know we're a strongman gym here. We got a lot of my business partner was a professional strongman. So I took those modalities from absolute strength. I took the strength speed side from Cal Dietz. And then I took the plyometric side from basically a lot that I learned from, you know, outside of it, but also this gentleman named Jay Schroeder. And what I did was I really followed into that block periodization and I kind of, you know, went through the triphasic model for years and I was able to get great success. As of the last two, three off seasons, I really kind of started to play with of how we arrange those blocks, right? The traditional is eccentric, isometric, concentric. And then what I noticed was, um, there, there was far more benefits from the isometric phase than we're giving credit for, as opposed to just recruiting maximal motor units. In fact, you can really increase tendon stiffness and the research displays that as well as reduce compensation and really fire the muscles properly. Right? So I stacked that block first. So I actually modified triphasic where I went isometric eccentric. And then as when we go to concentric, I actually stress that modality independently as well. Whereas Cal stresses concentric by going through the full range of motion quickly, fast, meaning like a tempo like XXX. What I did was I said, hey, let's put it in a fixed range of motion and focus purely on contractile velocity. So how quick, think about it like a seated box jump, how fast can you produce force? And that really stressed rate of force development really well. And then after that, I added a contrast uh, portion of that. And through that, uh, I was able to test that out with my basketball athletes, and they just got amazing results. Um, I usually have some coaches here inside my gym and some interns that end up being my guinea pig before I go 
and apply that to my to my professional athletes. But I was able to see amazing success. And really, there's a very intricate formula you could follow if you really want to develop your vertical force. And that's what I kind of have, quote unquote, deemed as modified triphasic and it's produced great results. So what, what I want to do now is kind of unpack that a little bit and, and try and get some some actual examples of how you use that with uh, athletes or even yourself, right? You mentioned you you trained yourself to do this. So if you yes. if you are going to take us through like a, a standard periodization um, mm-hmm. through those weeks, what might that look like for an individual athlete? Absolutely. So, you know, as we mentioned previously, we obviously have to do a needs analysis based off the athlete because, you know, as much as I want to just strictly stress vertical force, you know, uh, a running back needs to cut. Uh, a basketball player needs to be able to curvy linear sprint. Uh, a baseball athlete needs to be able to possess, you know, agility in the frontal plane, especially infielders. So you still have to stress those to be able to increase and improve movement economy or the efficiency at which they move. So you always want to expose them to new stimulus. I don't just focus on vertical force. However, usually what I do is they'll enter off season, they'll perform a week or two of general prep. This is where I perform a lot of low level plyometrics, right? I like to think of these as playground plyometrics. A kid in the playground can perform simple pogo jumps, squat jumps, lunge jumps. This kind of just acclimates the body and allows us through volume to be able to produce better quality repetition down the line. Um, After that is when we enter the first phase, and it's usually what I've deemed activation phase, right? It's also referred to as the accumulation phase and block periodization. And this activation phase is where we stress isometric modalities, okay? So we're going to perform things such as iso-extreme split squats, iso-extreme squats, really just getting the athlete to be able to learn in that isometric position or that, you know, with the uh, uh, fixed range of motion, right? To be what, able what to do you mean by the extreme after it, is that is that a is that a is, overcoming I'm, isometric, a yielding isometric? Uh, okay, so iso extreme is just me paying homage to Jay Schroeder. I wasn't the one <laughs> yeah. who came up. With this, no, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not criticizing the name at all. I'm just trying to work out what um yeah. what what what's going on there because yeah. I can see a guy in a, in a squat position. I just uh, just want to work out whether he's pushing against something immovable, whether he's no. uh, holding some dumbbells. How how does that look? So basically, um, you know, he deemed this ISO extreme because it was what he said in an extreme uh, range of motion, meaning a deeper range of motion. So if you would think like a split squat, it's in a really deep, meaning that the the muscles are on extreme stretch, right? A little bit longer stretch. Now, I kind of take that just by paying homage to him. Um, And really what I'm trying to do is in that position is imagine yourself um, in that squat position, but instead of just holding yourself at like a 90 degree angle, right. Where the hips and and the knees are about in line, uh, really rather what that extreme is, is you're holding that position by trying to spread that floor by screwing your feet into the ground, really activating the hips. Think of it from a split squat position. So putting that athlete in a deep split squat, right. Dropping the hips and then teaching them to pull with the front leg and, and then basically be able to drive forward with the back leg. So you can imagine you're not just, you're not just sitting in that position. You're actively pulling yourself into that position and locking yourself in depending on what we're trying to achieve from that actual position. So by doing it with a squat, you're teaching the athlete and reinforcing how to be able to produce torque, uh, through the hip by externally rotating the femur. 
Um, and this is a great prerequisite for a lot of athletes before they actually get into their jump training. Uh, so that's one of them that I like to utilize. Other ones that we can utilize, there's different modalities, as you said, uh, oscillatory, uh, overcoming isometrics, especially on the resistance side. I love, I actually love oscill uh, overcoming isometrics over a standard like, you know, back squat and just hold that position at the bottom. Um, and and um, there's just a series of movements, for instance, like an overcoming isometric split squat. I really prefer that over like a barbell on the back because, you know, if you're a coach and you've done this for a while, you know that the um, all those intrinsic muscles in the spine are usually going to fatigue sometimes more rapidly than say the hips. So we don't really be able to get that stimulus that we want. Now this depends on the athlete and their mobility, their ankle, hip, things of that nature. If their torso is more upright, things like that. But what I notice is if I can get an athlete pulling, uh, uh, you know, I notice far less fatigue in the, in the upper half, right? Because if you put a barbell in the back, you got to transfer energy to be able to support that weight. Uh, then if you're pulling against a movable force, um, but like I said, oscillatory, um, is another great one that we like to utilize from the resistance. And then, like I said, your standard barbell back, back squat with, a uh, uh, with some bands for some accommodating resistance and really focus on the big thing about isometrics is really focusing when you're in that range of motion or in that position that you want to lock that isometric in what, what are you actually doing? Right. As opposed to a lot of guys just passively sit in that isometric range of motion. And then what happens is the spine takes a lot of brunt of it, the back, right? Your, your back can get fatigued as opposed to screwing the feet into the ground and really being able to focus on the stimulus, stimulus to the hips. So I think it's, it's really a big factor of how you conduct the movements, um, when it comes to isometrics. In addition to that, and I'll just follow up to end this up with isometrics, I like to do a lot across the knee and the ankle because we know that when we place a, uh, an athlete in an isometric position and we load that and we load that isometric, for instance, I'll have an athlete either step onto like a, a plate and the heel is off of that plate, right? I can really increase tendon stiffness across that ankle, right? The Achilles. I can do the same thing if I go into a deep range of motion with the knee. And so now this it, it increases my ability to reduce injury or it reduces injury across the knee, but it also strengthens those tendons so that when we want to go elad, add that elastic strength and, and work that stretch reflex, stretch shortening cycle in the next one, which is the eccentrics, we can get a lot more of that rubber band like effect. Absolutely excellent. And when you when you progress this again through the through the stages, you've gone um, you've gone for your initial stage where you're building a little bit of volume. Um, you've gone into your isometric phase. What's what's next? And then I go into the eccentric, right? So I think isometric is actually based off of those. You know, the research says, like I said, to go back to tendon stiffness, reduce compensation, recruit maximal motor units. I mean, just from a logical standpoint, we could see where we would want to work that before working the stretch reflex, the stretch shortening cycle, which would then be, uh, 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 which we're working essentially in the eccentric phase. So the next phase is what I deem absorption, but we can also refer to it as transmutation and block periodization. Um, and this is where we can increase the complexity of some of our plyometrics, but really what I'm wanting to teach the athlete is how to decelerate, right? I want to put them in positions where they have to decelerate through a larger range of motion. So something like, you know, I like to stress a lot of unilateral exercises in this motion, right? And, and, um, 
the reason why I like unilateral is because we can go through a deeper range of motion. We can go through a deeper range of motion. I can have them decelerate through a deeper range of motion. On the flip side of that, um, I like to really stress a lot more utilizing gravity or resistance of that athlete to be able to kind of stop. Now, we might think of this as a fixed joint angle, uh, like a depth drop. So some people might deem that more isometric. But if you actually think about it, they're actually rapidly decelerating, right? So I like to stress those. Um, things such as snap downs, where we're rapidly uh, being able to uh, um go through the eccentric contraction and then stabilize. Those are some of the things that I like to stress on the, on the, um, on the jump, jumping plyometric side. And then on the resistance side, uh, it's, it's more of your traditional um, um, where, you know, we're performing a compound movement or a, or unilateral auxiliary uh, where we create a tempo, right? Like uh, anywhere from, you know, three, four, all the way up to six to eight seconds. Um, uh, uh, where they're performing. So think of it like a squat, that lowering phase, getting into uh, that 90 degree angle. Basically you're taking your time uh, to be able to reduce. Basically it's like a, a tempo, like a, a four X X if you will. Um, and really, uh, it, I mean, it can go extremely deep, but what we're trying to essentially do is work the mechanisms of the muscle spindle and the Golgi tendon organ within that muscle uh, it has an inhibitory-like effect, so we're trying to reduce that inhibitory-like effect. Um, and then from there, what I like to do is I actually like to progress to the concentric. Now, my difference, like I said previously in the concentric model, I really like to isolate the concentric. And the concentric portion uh, contraction of a lift or a dynamic movement is the shortening of the muscle where eccentric is the lengthening concentric is the shortening so think about it as in a squat you're uh, uh you're basically on the up phase or if you think of it as an easy one on the bicep curl uh as you go down right um from the top you're that's the eccentric and as you lift the barbell up it is the concentric so I actually like to really uh, stress that two ways when it comes to our power or jump or plyometrics. <clears throat> I guess it wouldn't be necessarily deemed true, true plyometrics because, again, you're not going through the full absorption, you know, amortization, and then production of force. We're actually putting an athlete into a fixed position. Think of this as like a half kneeling uh, a single leg box jump, right? The athlete is in a half kneeling position on the ground from this deep range of motion. The athlete needs to produce force through that front lead leg and be able to explode up through hip extension and land on a box. Think of this as a seated box jump where the athlete is sitting on a bench, needs to be able to, you know, keep their feet on the ground, try to eliminate momentum in the torso and be able to produce force rapidly to then jump up onto a box. And what this is working is the rate of force development, right? How fast can that athlete produce force? How fast can they shorten that muscle? So it's really working that contractile velocity. And what I've noticed is when you really uh, isolate this modality, you can get great uh, success by focusing specifically on that. Now, I also like to stress it through ballistics. So I'll add some med ball tosses to it where, you know, this could be like a seated vertical toss, right? It's where the athlete's holding the medicine ball at their chest. 
they're in a seated position and they're exploding up from that seated position, basically exploding the ball into the air. Uh, there's no eccentric uh, modality or portion to that movement. Again, we're only stressing that. And then when you go to the resistance side, when I'm focusing on concentric, I do things such as back squat, okay, or uh, uh, um, um, a box squat, forgive me. So the athlete is coming down, they sit onto the box, right? There is no stretch reflex, no short stretch shortening cycle. We've eliminated that. And now the athlete is rapidly producing force off of that box. Another one would be essentially like a trap bar deadlift off the floor. Um, there's concentric on the way up and then they just drop the, uh, the trap bar. Uh, you could do this with, um, you know, like a Bulgarian split squat with the dumbbells on the ground or trap bar deadlift where it's coming from the ground. They're exploding up, but then there's no eccentric, right? They're not utilizing that elasticity uh, 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 or, or that transition phase within the jump. And then finally, we want to put it all together, right? So we've kind of checked all these boxes. We've we've incrementally progressed each one of these blocks and and I might add that each one of these blocks is about four to six weeks long and we deload for a week after each time to be able to uh, recover the body you know recover the nervous system things like that because the isometric and eccentric are extremely taxing on the body but then what I do usually to finish this out is I put everything together and this is where we perform true plyometrics um, this is typically uh where we'll perform some overspeed stuff with some bands. And in addition to that, I'll usually typically perform, you know, I like a rebound box jump in this phase, something where they're stepping off a platform. You need to be able to rapidly, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, absorb force and then produce force, right? So we're all, we're, we're really trying to get the athlete to step up, you know, spool up, reduce contact time, and then be able to explode up onto a box. Uh, in addition to that, I like to introduce contrast training here. Uh, this is where we're trying to get, uh, you know, potentiation. This is where we're trying to uh, have a uh, ha have something like a heavy resistance, right? And then be able to transfer that heavy resistance to that same musculature, right? Think about it like a hip extension with a squat. So we hit a heavy squat, heavy trap bar deadlift. And then we go transfer that over, that heightened nervous system over to like a heavy or, or a, a max effort box jump. In the event that we're trying to achieve an acute adaptation, that's a little bit higher. And we want to consistently do this through this block of training uh, with the end result trying to, uh, um, you know, get a long-term adaptation to the vertical jump. And, and really, if we do this properly, we can see that each one of those blocks stack on top of each other and we're able to produce more overall vertical force by the time that we get to, you know, week three, week two, week three, week four of the peak phase, which is that final phase. I think that is a, a superb little insight into exactly how you start to build those things up and how mm. other coaches could potentially start to steal some of your fantastic ideas um, in order to make sure that they are getting the best out of their athletes, making sure that you're um, having some kind of logical progression, in the exercise selection, which you use. But when, when it then comes to um, an athlete who doesn't have a coach, right? Let's say um, they, they're not in a, a super professional organization. They just want to make the difference between making their team, maybe uh, sitting on the bench, whatever it might be. How can athletes like that without a coach start to improve their vertical performance? Hmm. So, I, I, you know, I have a lot of resources, 
um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of just giving everything out. If, if somebody were to want to look on my YouTube channel, I go pretty in depth on this and I feel that I've gone in depth enough to where an athlete could start to kind of design a program. Now I do have programs, uh, that I do have out on my website. Um, don't mean to plug here, but I'm just, I'm just giving you the reality of the situation. Um, you know, so I do have programs that I've written up about that, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you could kind of break down and know that you have a progression that you're following from the foundation all the way up to, uh, um, you know, just the most complex, the least complex to, to high complexity, as far as your jump training goes, and you're able to kind of progressively overload your strength through that block of time, you will see increases, right? Uh, we get really wrapped up in a lot of this. I get geeked up in a lot of this stuff, right? And it, it sounds really complex, but at the end of the day, if you're, if you're always constantly striving for more inches on the box jump, right? If you're always constantly striving for five more pounds, uh, in, in your strength progression with your lower body, you're going to see those increases. Now, if I were to put a million dollars on it and somebody said, Hey, what's the number one way. And I had to throw my, my hat in the ring to say, uh, this is what I'm going to go for to optimize and get the most optimized, uh, 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 training for vertical force. I would follow something, a plan like this modified triphasic that I'm, I'm essentially alluding to. Um, you can definitely find a lot of those resources if you just look that up on Google. Um, and like I said, I have a lot of free resources out there. And then I also offer it through uh, paid programming. Absolutely fantastic. So, Chris, massive thanks for your time and effort today. I really enjoyed listening to how exactly you program all of these fantastic things. Um, so where can people find you if they want to find out more information? Yeah, first, just want to say, hey, thanks so much for the opportunity. You guys have been amazing. Uh, this is great. I love to be able to share these different insights as I kind of come across them. Um, and, you know, part of this and part of how we just continue to get better is just try things and and see what the result is and then share them. Um, you can find me on, uh, I, you know, whatever platform you have, Overtime Athletes, um, OvertimeAthletes.com, IG at Overtime Athletes. YouTube have plenty of free resources on there, youtube.com slash overtime athletes. And uh, I'm always available. However, I can help everybody out. Absolutely fantastic. So Chris, massive thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure and I uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Matthew, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Chris for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you do at home too. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to hear more from Chris, you can hear Chris's lecture in the Coach Academy completely free by clicking the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time. So you can get great access to Chris, some more of his fantastic ideas and see exactly how he puts that down on paper to write programs. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it would be fantastic if you could recommend it to a friend, a colleague or an athlete. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me and Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.